So one of the biggest lies that our culture, and I think the world in general, believes is that right and wrong are based on how we feel. Now, oftentimes, uh, we, we don't even recognize that we're doing this. But morality, so often, is based on how you feel. We see this over and over again when it comes to sexuality. I've drawn a line. I see, I see young people do this all the time. I draw a line, and I know that God doesn't want me to, to cross that line, and I'm not going to cross that line. That is the line that I will not cross with whoever it is I'm dating. And then you start to look at that line. Boy, that line doesn't look too bad. So you walk over to the line, and you start to play with the line, and man, it kind of feels good when you're playing with that line, doesn't it? It gives you a little shot of adrenaline, and let's face it, God created physical intimacy to feel good, and well, it feels good when you're playing on that line, and so you start to play with the line, and it feels good, and so what do you do? You don't cross the line. No, you're way too smart to cross the line, so you move the line. You just move the line over a little bit. That's the new line. I will not cross that line. And, uh, you know, you'll stay right here. And it feels good what you're doing. And, And let's face some facts. You're in love. Oh, man, I just love this person so much. And God created physical intimacy to express love. And because we're in love and we're expressing this love, well, we might as walk up to this new line, right? And you would never cross the new line, would you? No, you're way too smart to cross the new line. But man, it feels good, doesn't it? So what do you do? You just move it again. And pretty soon you're doing things that you know are wrong. But you've justified it because it feels good. We do this in all sorts of ways. Not just within sexuality, not just within physical intimacy. It is a lie that our culture and not just our culture, but humanity in general, has believed, we've bought the lie, that morality is based on what feels good, that right and wrong is based on what feels good. As Christians, we notice this, and we see our culture doing it. And so what do we start to chant? We start to chant something like facts over feelings, right? Facts over feelings. And we use use that chant as a weapon against the people that have left reality. They're so far gone that they don't even recognize reality anymore. But we're so busy enchanting that that we don't realize all of the places in our own lives where we let our feelings change our morality. I just gave you one example, but another example is church. So often we look at church and it's so easy to let our feelings begin to dictate how we define and how we interact with the church. I mean, boy, I just don't feel like going to church today. It comes really easy because I don't feel like it to not go. And man, I'll tell you, on Sunday morning, how difficult is it to get out the door on time? I'll tell you, I could get out the door at 7 a.m. every, every weekday. But Sunday rolls around, and man, is it like pulling teeth to get out at 9. You're feeling it too, right? I don't feel like it. But we also start to, you know, sometimes it's just, I don't get along with everybody at church. Sometimes people at church are kind of weird. That pastor, he talks a lot about mountain biking, and I'm not really into mountain biking, and I'm sick of the mountain biking analogies. Talk about something real for once. And so we start to change even the definition of church. And we start to see as the church just as a building, you know, because I don't really want to get to know the people in that building. So I'm going to change the definition of church to a building and just being together on Sunday morning. And that's all we need to do together as a church, right, is gather on Sunday morning. And we begin to change the definition of church. Instead of seeing it as what God has really created the church to be, which is a gathering of believers, a local gathering of believers, where we actually step into each other's lives and we become intimately involved with one another. 
And what happens as we do this is, you know, we're all kind of like, we got rough edges. I don't know about you. I've got some rough edges. And as we get involved in each other's lives, as we get to know one another, and we bump one another around, God smooths out those edges. For Christmas, my son got a rock tumbler. I think the church is like a rock tumbler. What do you do with a rock tumbler? You put all these rough, rugged rocks, and you put a little bit of water and some grit, and then you turn it on, and I was shocked. I had no clue that that rock tumbler would turn for like a month straight. So for a month straight, for one set of rocks, and then he had two sets of rocks, it was just a constant tumbling sound in our house. In fact, it was so weird when we finally got these polished rocks. But for a month straight, it's just turning and cranking, and these rocks are bouncing up against each other. And it is amazing at the end, when you pull these rocks out, and they are smooth, and they are polished. That's what the church is like. It doesn't feel good all the time. It doesn't feel good to bump shoulders with people that you don't always get along with, that have different interests than you. An author uh, calls this supernatural community. Supernatural community. Because let's face some facts. In the church, at least a healthy church, you should be bumping into people that you wouldn't necessarily choose to hang out with. People that might have totally different ideas than you, totally different personalities than you. But because God has called us together, and he's called us to be intimately involved in each other's lives, to get to know each other personally, you make that commitment. And you say, I'm committed to this church. And God is going to use this church to polish me. And he's going to use me to rough out the the edges of other people in the church. But man, that doesn't always feel good. And so what we do is we begin to create what I call church light. Church light. We're not where we're really intimately involved with one another's lives. Not where we really get to know each other. Not where we're praying for each other on a consistent basis. And we know each other well enough that we know what we need to pray for one another. No, we just come on a Sunday morning. We check the box. And we say, peace out. I did my job. I'm still a part of the church. You see, we do this all the time. We let our feelings dictate our morality. We let our feelings dictate what is right and wrong. What are some other ways that you've been deceived? Where are some other places where you have let your feelings dictate what is true and what is right? Satan is the father of lies. He is out to deceive us And he does it in some crazy, manipulative ways. So much so that the only way to not fall for his deception is to be so rooted in Scripture that you recognize the lie. And that is what we will talk about today as we continue our study in Revelation. So we titled this series Hopeful because Revelation should be giving us hope. A lot of Christians like to avoid Revelation because they have a hard time interpreting it or they think it's scary. But Revelation was written to give us hope. So out of all people in this world, we should be the most full of hope. We're up to Revelation 12, and we've gone through. This is the second of four visions. We'll, get in, we'll eventually get into vision three and vision four. The first vision was letters sent out to seven different churches, and then John is taken up to heaven, and he's given this vision. The first thing he sees is the throne room of God, declaring God's glory. And then we see seven seals, and we walk through the seven seals that reveals how absolutely depraved man is and how glorious God is. And then we see the seven trumpets. We, see, we read about the seven trumpets. We technically, I guess, would be hearing them. But there are seven trumpets, and those are the judgments God is releasing on humanity. And he's doing all of this in a case. It's like a courtroom. If you could picture a courtroom, the, the seals and the trumpets 
are revealing and building a case showing that man deserves what we'll eventually get to, which are the seven bowls of wrath. So it's building this case in a courtroom setting showing what humanity that has rejected God ultimately deserves, which is his wrath. So that's what, we're, that's what God is doing. He's building this case so that no one could ever look at God and say, well, I didn't read the fine print. I mean, I know I clicked on the user agreement, but I never actually opened the user agreement and read it. By the way, last week I used that as an example, and somebody sent me that NBC has a user agreement, and if you read through the whole thing, at the very end, you get a chili recipe. There you go. If you want a sweet chili recipe... Go to NBC's user agreement and go to the end. Read through the whole thing. I don't know if it's good or not, because I haven't read through that user agreement. But God, that's what God's doing. He's saying, you, you, the, the case is so clear, there's no way you could declare that you didn't read the fine print, that you didn't read the user agreement. I have made the case. It's very clear. You deserve the seven bowls of wrath to whoever does not put their faith and trust in him. Now, during this time, we picked up a couple weeks ago in what's called an interlude. So he's making this case, and these interludes don't necessarily move the narrative forward, but give us a deeper look into the narrative. We're catching up, or we're still, I should say, we're still in that interlude period today. So it's not moving the narrative forward, but it's actually going to explain more of the seven bowls of wrath. It's giving us a reason, more of a reason, for the seven bowls of wrath. So that's where we at today, Revelation 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains, and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to heaven and to his throne." And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has, place, she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives, even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for time and times and time and half a time. The serpent poured out poured, sorry, poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman, to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help, came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So just a real quick introductory matter. And he stood on the sand of the sea. There's a little bit of debate. Now remember that our verses and chapters are not inspired. So when John wrote this, he didn't write like chapter 12, verse 1 and then writes a sentence, verse 2, and then writes a sentence. That's not what John did. John wrote the whole thing out as God led him by the Holy Spirit to write, as God inspired him to write. 
Later on, in order to help reference things quickly, man numbered the chapters and the verses. There's a little bit of debate on, and he stood on the sand of the sea. Some believe that it belongs with chapter 13. So it should be 13.1, starting with, and he st stood on the sand of the sea. He being Satan. So some, uh, some more literal translations will say, or for clarification, I should say, not literal, but clarification's sake, and Satan stood on the sand of the sea. So there's a little bit of debate. I actually agree with that, that it should be maybe closer to 13.1. Either way, whether you take it as the end of 12, some actually have tw that as 12.18. Either way, if you take it as tw the end of 12.17, 12.18, or 13.1, this is a transitionary statement. So this, and he stood on the sand of the sea, is transitioning us to chapter 13. We'll actually study that next week. So I say all that to say that we're not even going to really break down and he stood on the sand of the sea today. All right, with that in mind, let's go all the way back to verse 1 and dive in. And a great sign appeared in heaven. So we're still in this interlude period. So he's drawing us deeper in and giving us a more full explanation of what's going on here. So this great sign is mega simeon. That's mega in the Greek is great. It's going to be translated as great. Uh, I mean, we see that all the time, mega, right? Simeon is sign. So these signs explain and amplify the narrative even more. So it's going to explain and amplify, and it's going to help justify or give us the, you know, we're going to see the rationale behind the seven bowls of God's wrath. So it also, this is, these great signs, we're kind of switching a little bit of the genre here. So this is an, an apocalyptic genre, and right here, it's, he's writing, he's kind of taking the form of mythology. Now, I want to be clear as I say this, because some people might hear that and say, oh, John's writing a myth. No, this is not a myth. John is not writing a myth, but he's taking this form of mythology as a way to kind of unmythologize, mythologize, mythologize, there we go, unmythologize what actual myths are. So myths oftentimes try to explain the great battle between good and evil. John is writing in this genre to show us what, what really is lying behind good and evil. So you have a lot of myths about these two gods that end up getting in a fight, and that's how we get good and evil. And we see that throughout many different religions. John is going to take that, and he, that genre, and he's going to give us the real truth. So he's using this as a way to plug in truth. It's the history behind every myth that's ever existed. The battle between good and evil is a compelling story, isn't it? That's why almost every movie, every epic movie we ever see is about good and evil. No matter how off the mark it is, no matter how rooted in reality is, there is always a good and an evil, someone to root for, someone to root against. Star Wars is a great example. Star Wars has nothing to do with reality, right? There is no truth in Star Wars. And yet you clearly see who is evil, the Empire, and who is good, the Rebellion. Unless you're one of those guys that are just way too into Star Wars and you're starting to make a case on why the Rebellion is really the bad guys. If you've ever read any of those, well, you might have too much time on your hands, I don't know. I've read a couple of those too, so. But, but my whole point is that there, throughout human history, we're trying to explain good and evil. John is, is inspired by the Holy Spirit to write in the genre of myth to give us the reality of the fight. Now, because it's in this mythological genre, though it's not a myth, and I want to make that very clear, this is not mythological. He's not writing a myth. But because it's in that genre, there's going to be a lot of symbolism used. When you hear people talk about how crazy Revelation is, they're getting into this spot. This is where they're like, man, this is crazy. I'll never understand that. I actually think it's really easy to understand, especially if you have a lot of roots within the Old Testament. So he's going to draw on a lot of Old Testament symbology to explain the real battle between good and evil. So let's dive in. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head, and a crown of twelve stars. This is simply a reference to Israel. 
the woman is Israel. The, the sun, the moon, and the 12 stars is a reference all the way back to Joseph's dream. If you remember back in Genesis, Joseph has a dream. He tells it to his father, Jacob, and he, say, he explains that there's a sun and a moon and stars, and 11 of the stars bow down to another one. So this is a reference to Israel. The woman here is Israel. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and in the agony of giving birth. So this is describing the time period between the exile and all the way up to the birth of the Messiah. So all the way up to the birth of Christ. That's the pregnant, that's the birth pains. He's, she's going to give birth to the Messiah, and she, Israel, is going through difficult times during that period. So throughout that period, starting at the exile, all the way through, and even to this day they're going through problems, but for different reasons, but she was, Israel was under oppression. Other nations had come in and conquered. They had to live under the rule of several different nations. And so that's what that verse 2 is getting at. And another sign appeared in heaven. Now, notice that this is not a great sign. The sign of Israel, pregnant, getting ready to give birth to the Messiah, that's a great sign that we can look at. This is just a sign. Appeared in heaven. Notice both of these are appearing in heaven. So it's God's way of explaining to John a little bit more in depth and giving us justification for the seven bulls. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great dragon. Sorry, a great red dragon. With seven heads and ten horns, and on his seven heads diadems. So we might think of a literal dragon when we read this. I don't think we necessarily should. John isn't painting a picture. This isn't a, later on, we'll identify the dragon as Satan himself. This is not how Satan actually looks. He's giving us this description with some uh, symbolism. So, let's break this down. Re a red would be the color of blood. So, this is a bloodthirsty being. The dragon is a symbol of power. So, this is a bloodthirsty being who is full of power. With seven heads, and on those seven heads there's going to be these seven diadems. This is symbolic for Satan trying to usurp God's authority. Satan is in rebellion against God. Satan doesn't want God to have authority over him. He is trying to usurp God's authority. And so the seven heads with the seven diadems is symbolic for him trying to usurp God's authority. And with ten horns. These ten horns, horns throughout the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, were symbols of power. So these ten horns are symbolic for power, but they are, it's also a reference all the way back to Daniel 7, where we see ten horns, which represents ten nations. So this, this great, powerful being who is bloodthirsty, who's in rebellion against God, who's trying to usurp God's authority, is going to deceive ten nations and will use and manipulate these ten nations to try to fulfill his purpose, to try to fulfill his will of rebellion against God. That's what verse 3 is all about. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. This is simply a reference to his rebellion. And in his rebellion, he has convinced a third of the angels to rebel with him. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So we've got Israel, who is the woman, is about to give birth to the Messiah. Satan doesn't like this, so he's going to try to devour. Now we can look back in our historical record, we can look back through the Gospels, and we see how Satan tried to squash out God's plan. God's plan of redemption. We see it with King Herod. So this is a reference from King Herod, forward with how Satan thought he could eliminate God's plan and God's Messiah. It starts off with King Herod killing off children, and then throughout Christ's time on earth, he is constantly under the threat of being murdered. That's what Satan is trying to do, trying to devour the Messiah. But he is unsuccessful. She gave birth to a male child, 
one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. This is a description of Jesus. So he is born, he lives his life, he accomplishes his mission, and then he is caught up to heaven and he sits on his throne. Last week we talked about the here but not yet, that Christ was victorious upon the cross. Then he was placed upon his throne. Christ is victorious. We have victory in Christ, but he has not begun his reign yet. We see that here. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has, play, uh, has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. This 1,260 days is three and a half years. And this is something that we're going to see throughout this narrative is past or historic actions, but also we're going to jump forward all the way into the tribulation. So this, this narrative is kind of an interesting narrative because it shows us things that are happening in the past and then without explaining, now in the future, this is also going to be true. But in the future, they will be uh, in a place prepared by God, nourished for the last half of the Great Tribulation. So that's the three and a half years. But we also see that during this time, the Israel is going to be dismantled, right? So they, will, they are going to lose their nation. They're going to be spread across the earth, so they're going to be persecuted. We'll talk about that quite a bit, but also during this time, God will keep them. So that's what he's getting at in verse 6. Verse 7, now, war arose in heaven. So verses 7 through 12, we get key in on that now, and it's going to give us more insight into the war that started in verse 12. So he's diving deeper into the war. So he gives us kind of this overview, one through six, and then seven, he's diving us deeper into what's happening. Now, war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. I think it's important for us to take one second out here and notice who's not in this battle. God. All three persons of the Trinity, we could say, are not in this battle. Although Satan is the adversary, Satan is not equal to God. If God was seen in this war scene, there would be no war. It would just be eliminated at that, at that moment. Satan is the adversary, and he is fighting with Michael, who is more of an equal. Satan is not God's equal. It's very important for us to remember that. Throughout history, we see mythologies of good versus evil, and good and evil are always equal, right? They're kind of on the same level playing field. And so sometimes the good starts to defeat the evil, and sometimes the evil starts to defeat the good, and there's this big battle between them, and who knows who's actually going to win because they're on the same level. We do not see that with God and Satan. Satan is not on God's playing field. Satan does not have the power of God. Although Satan is powerful, he is not as powerful as God. That's important for us to remember. God is almighty. God is all-powerful. God is omniscient and omnipotent. Satan is not. Satan cannot be all places at once. Satan cannot read your mind. Satan, although very powerful and very manipulative and great at deception, cannot force you to do anything. It's important to remember that. God is all-powerful. Satan is not. So is Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was, Heb here being the dragon, Satan, was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. So they were booted out of heaven, Satan and the one-third of the angels that he had convinced to rebel against God. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan and the deceiver of the whole world. So we've got five different descriptions of Satan here. The first one is that great dragon. And we've already talked about how he is powerful. We should know that. Satan is powerful. There, he has power. His power is in his deception. 
So the red drag, the great dragon is emphasizing his power, was thrown down that ancient serpent. Now, when you hear that term ancient serpent, it should plug you all the way back to Genesis 3. Genesis 3, where the serpent deceived Eve. So we see once again that he is deceptive. But the serpent also would imply that he's crafty, that he's tricky. When Jesus in Matthew 10, when Jesus is sending out his disciples, he tells them to be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. So we see this idea that serpents are crafty, they're wise. Satan has had several thousand years now to study humanity, to know how we work. We think that we're new. Every generation thinks that they've got some new clever idea. Your clever ideas are just recycled, just to let you know. I really hate generational fighting. I see it quite a bit. Gen Z, whatever other generations we have, millennials, baby boomers. Let's just stop the generational fighting. We should be encouraging one another. Because we're all kind of in the same boat here. And none of us are really that original. Boomers were not original. Gen X is not original. I'll be honest with you, maybe I see this because I was born in 1980, and if you were born in 1980, you don't really fit in with any generation, right? Uh, I mean, you're definitely not a a millennial. Yeah, you're not a millennial, and you're not a baby boomer. You're not Gen X either, like, yeah, anyways. So, but the whole point is, we're all kind of there, and look, we we are all easily deceived. Satan has been studying us, he knows how to deceive us. He is a serpent who is tricky, he is crafty, but that's not all he is. He is also called the devil, so that's our third description, and Satan. Now, devil and Satan, they're both, devil is a Greek word meaning adversary. Satan is a Greek, a Hebrew word that's been changed over into Greek, and it just means the same thing. Both of them mean adversary or evil opponent. So they are, he is an, an accuser, an evil opponent, an adversary. And the, this, is, uh, this is showing that he is driving a wedge between us and God. We, we are God's object of love. God lavishes his love upon us in his creation. Now Satan hates God. He wants to usurp God's authority, but he knows that he's not on the same playing field as God. He knows that he can never defeat God. So what does he do? He goes after those whom God loves. It reminds me of like a school bully. A school bully who's being abused at home, and his dad is beating him up, and because he can never defeat his dad, but because he has so much anger in his heart, he goes to school, and what does he do? He takes out his aggression on those weaker than him. And that's what Satan is doing. He knows that he cannot defeat God, so instead of trying to defeat God anymore, what does he do? He takes everything out, all of his wrath, all of his anger, all of his hate towards God on those whom God loves. So he is our accuser. He's our evil adversary. He is trying to drive a wedge between you and God. But not only is he an accuser, an evil opponent, he is also the deceiver of the whole world. And this is how he drives that wedge. Through deception. God is the creator of the world, therefore he is the ultimate authority on what is true. He is the ultimate authority on morality. So what greater way to drive a wedge between us and God than to deceive us on what is real? On to deceive us on our interactions with God. So he wants you to believe that you're unlovable. He wants you to believe that God would never love you. And even if he would love you, he would only love you if you worked hard enough to be loved. And so he produces people that are either full of license and running wild because they can never 
be loved by God, or he wants to produce people that are a bunch of legalists who are sitting there comparing one another saying, I'm more lovable than you because I know all of these weird facts about God. I'm more lovable than you because I never, when I was dating, let me tell you guys something. When I was dating, I never drew the line. I just kept my eyes focused on God. And maybe I did jump over the line, but I didn't tell you that. He wants to drive a wedge, and so he's constantly trying to convince us that we are unloved by God. And it's a lie. Literally a lie from Satan. No matter how bad you've failed, no matter how miserable you feel like you are, no matter how much you jumped over the line, God still loves you. You are loved by God. So he is the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ has come. So this is a celebration of Satan's defeat. I think it's happening in the future. So we saw in the past, he was thrown down. In the future now, there's going to be a celebration. For the accuser of our brothers, the accuser, once again, this is a legal term, and it really means in a courtroom, this person who is accusing you. If Satan is our accuser, then God is our defender. You could think of two lawyers, the prosecutor and and the defender, and God would be on our side. He'd be sitting next to us as we're on trial. Whereas Satan would be sitting across the courtroom pointing his finger, trying to convince the world that we are guilty. Of our brothers, brothers here as fellow believers, has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him. So they, being the fellow believers, have conquered him. And he's going to give us two ways that he has conquered them. By the blood of the Lamb. So that's first that we need to focus in on. The way we conquer, the way we have victory over Satan, isn't through anything we actually do. There's nothing you can do to produce victory. It is through the blood of the Lamb, it is through Christ that we have victory. So it's by putting our faith and trust in Christ that we have victory over our accuser. So that's how we have victory, and then we can conquer also through the wor- by the word of their testimony. So we can conquer first by having faith in Christ. You can have victory no other way, and then we also share that victory by being a good witness for Christ so that others would put their faith and trust in Christ as well. How often do you think about being a witness for Christ? And I'm not just talking about evangelism, although evangelism is important. But do you live in a way that shines the glory back to Christ? Do you live in a way where people are wondering, why are you different? Or do you look like the rest of the world? Are you being a good witness for Christ? And here's the reason why they could, they could uh, hold to their testimony. For they loved not their lives, even unto death. So they desired the holiness that God had given them more than the happiness of of chasing after futile things. These things that are fleeting, that promise us that we will be happy if we pursue them, they they loved the holiness that God had given them more than this, which leads us to ask a question, do you live to be happy or do you live to be holy? Happiness is another lie that has been served to us by the accuser. That if only you do this thing, then you will be happy. If only you get this thing, then you will be happy. And how many of us have chased down that lie only to be let down over and over and over again? And we hear it all the time. We hear, you deserve. If someone tells you, you deserve anything but hell, they are lying. We deserve hell, we deserve death, we deserve eternal separation from God, but because he loves us so much, he provided a way out of hell. You don't deserve that new car. I don't care how hard you worked for it. 
You deserve death. But God in his graciousness will give you more than just that. Now here's what's really crazy. Is those people that pursue happiness and think life is all about happiness, typically those people are the ones who will end up bitter. Those who pursue holiness, God does something crazy for you. Because he has created you holy, because when you put your faith and trust in him, he he took you from being dead in your trespasses and sins and made you holy and righteous and alive within him. When you pursue the righteousness that he has made you, when you pursue the holiness that he has bestowed upon you, he actually then provides joy as well. Do you want to be a joy-filled person? Pursue the holiness that God has lavished upon you. He has made you holy, grow in that holiness, pursue what it means to be holy, and God will also give you joy. So they loved their lives, even not their lives, even unto death. They they preferred God's holiness to their own happiness. Therefore, because Satan has been defeated, rejoice. That's a pretty simple command right there, right? Therefore, because Satan has been defeated, rejoice. O heavens, and you who dwell in them. All right. So that's a command for those who are in heaven. But there's another command coming. But woe to you, O earth and sea. Sorry, I shouldn't say command, it's a warning. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. So in heaven there will be rejoicing, For those who have victory in Christ, there is rejoicing. But for those who are not in Christ, there is a woe. Because Satan is here, and he knows his time is short, and his whole purpose is to unleash his wrath on the objects of God's love. So then we get to 13. 13 through 7 give us a more in-depth look on the pursuit of the woman and uh, the, the, certain, or the serpent, or the dragon, I should say. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued, pursued here also means persecuted, the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman, once again, is Israel. The male child is the Messiah. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness. The two wings of the great eagle and into the wilderness, both are just symbolic for God's protection. So God is protecting them. There's a lot of theologians that debate uh, exactly how God is protecting them. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know. All I know is that God is protecting the Israelites. God is protecting the Jews. Uh, Which reminds me, I got a little bit of time left, but when we, Jen and I went to Israel for my uh, seminary class, we spent two weeks there. It was awesome. I highly recommend going to Israel if you can make it. The day before we went to the Golan Heights, the Golan Heights borders Syria. The day before we went to the Golan Heights, there was a battle that erupted right there where we were going to be. ISIS came fighting against Israel. And what was amazing is, as the ISIS rebels came to attack the Israelites, a dust cloud came and sat upon ISIS until they retreated. And then after they retreated, this dust cloud went back up. There's video of it. It's really crazy. If you just Google... Golan Heights, ISIS, I guarantee you that video will pop up. It's absolutely insane. So, all that to say, God is going to protect the Israelites. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not persecution. That doesn't mean that they didn't suffer through the Holocaust. But it does mean that God is going to keep them going to the place where, he is, where she is to be nourished for time and times and half a time. Once again, this is three and a half years, so we see that, that they will be persecuted, but God will keep them. And during the Great Tribulation, God is going to give them a special place of protection somewhere on the earth. To the place where she is to be... Sorry, I just read that. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away like a flood. This is symbolic, the the river out of his mouth to sweep her away like a flood is symbolic for persecution. So the serpent is going to pursue the Israelites. Have you ever wondered why Jews are so persecuted? Have you ever wondered why the Holocaust actually happened? Have you ever wondered why so many people hate the Jews? It's because Satan has deceived so many people. Because Satan has deceived so many nations. And because 
Israel is an object of God's love because Israel is God's chosen people and God used them to bring about the Messiah that would bless the whole world. Satan hates them and is out to deceive everyone to hate them as well. That is the reason why Jews are so hated in this world. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from its mouth. So although they're going to be persecuted, God will give them a place of protection, and in particular in the last three and a half years of the tribulation. Then the dragon became furious. There are three reasons for the dragon's fury. One, his defeat in heaven. Two, his inability to, uh, to kill the Messiah. And three, his inability to totally crush the Israelites. So the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So because he's furious and because he can't get at the Israelites, he's going to make war on her offspring. Her offspring are, ch- are the church, and in the tribulation, those who put their faith and trust in Christ. So what happens? Satan, because he can't crush Israel, will now persecute the church as well. And we see persecution all over the world against the church. We see persecution all over the world against Christians. We are lucky in this country because we have not experienced the same level of persecution. But we won't always be this safe and protected. It is time to prepare your hearts for persecution. It will not be an easy time. But now is the time to prepare your heart and ask the deep question of, is this really my faith? Or is this just a cultural thing? Do I just enjoy rubbing shoulders with other Christians on a Sunday morning because it feels good and I've got nothing else to do? Or is this real? Has God really lavished his grace upon my life? Am I re- do I really love holiness more than happiness? Do I really love the holiness God has lavished upon me more than my comfort? Those are the questions we're going to have to ask. There, he's going to make war with Christians, and I think the war is going to be fought on two fronts. The first front is with unbelievers. And Satan is trying to convince non-believers, people who have not put their faith and trust in Christ, that it is the Christian's fault. Anything bad in this world that has happened is your fault. And there is a great deception coming along that Christians are the ones to blame. And there is deception that truth or reality is not real, that I can pick my gender, that gender doesn't even exist, that I can do whatever I want, and there's no consequences, and you're at blame if I'm unhappy because you told me God's truth. You actually said there was a truth. It is a sad deception that is coming upon the world and it is going to wreak havoc and there will be lots of pain, emotional scars. So how are we as a church to respond on this front? I think the first step is we hold fast to the truth. God is the creator of this world. He has the ultimate, he is the ultimate authority on what is real. He is the ultimate authority on truth. And if we forsake that truth, if we give up that truth, then we are falling into the deception that Satan wants us to fall into. So we have to stand firm in truth. We have to call reality as we see it. But we should not necessarily chant facts over feelings. How do we present this truth is going to be just as important as standing in the truth. Shaking your fist at someone and telling them that they've believed a lie and then hating them for it is not going to convince those who are deceived that they are deceived. But showing them the truth in love, with gentleness and patience 
and kindness. I'm not saying forsake the truth. I'm saying stand in the truth with the fruit of the Spirit. So that's the first front the war is going to be fought on. The next front is it's going to be fought with believers. And Satan is going to want to deceive us. He's wanting us to change our doctrine. He wants us to forsake the truth. He wants us to draw a line and play on the line just a little bit with truth. He wants to divide churches. He wants us to have a bad ecclesiology, a bad idea of what the church even is, so that we are ineffective and we can't bear good witness. Too often we think of the Christian life as a life of prosperity and comfort. In fact, many try to convince others to become Christians by emphasizing prosperity and comfort. But God has not called us to prosperity and comfort, but to purpose. A life that is lived in a mission to win the lost to Christ. And we'll never win the lost to Christ if we are fighting amongst ourselves over lies and if we are fighting with those who are lost. Right now, there is still hope and there is still time for those who are lost. Satan's tactics are the same, to deceive and manipulate, to convince the world that what is true from the very source of a loving God that wants best for them, that that truth is a lie. Our job is to share the truth with love and joy and patience and gentleness so that all would come to know the truth of Christ and to grow in his grace. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that we can understand it, that you have written it in such a way that we can comprehend the truth that is in your word and the truth that you have placed in creation. Lord, help us not to fight against your truth, but to submit to it and to share it. Not to share it with anger, not to share it because we feel the truth slipping in this world, but to share it with love. Understanding that those who don't see the truth are lost. They are hurt and broken souls who are in desperate need of their Savior's love. In your name we pray. Amen.